In this podcast, we're going to be talking about the strengths and the weaknesses of the European Union. Americans can be forgiven for not knowing much about the European Union. After all, not even Europeans know very much about the European Union. And we have to define what this entity or institution is before we try to answer the question that is posed to you in this Unit 6, Discussion 4 assignment. That question is, what were the strengths and weaknesses of the European Union since 1987? But let's go back and see what the European Union is in the first place. After World War II, the nations of Europe had finally learned their lesson. They realized that they could not continue to go on and fight world war after world war and still survive. So they decided that they would try to do something fundamentally different from what they had tried after World War I. After 1945, you have a United Nations in place, but something more seemed to be necessary. When we talk about the European Union, we're talking about something called European integration. What that means is that the European nation-states would agree to give up some of their individual sovereignties in order to pool their resources with others and tie their economies together as closely as possible. European integration refers to the pulling down of barriers between nation-states as well as the surrender of power by the nation-states to some organization that exists above it, in this case, the European Union. Now, the European Union did not come into existence until 1991, but it was being put together for decades before that. The first title was the Common Market. It really started after World War II. Winston Churchill said we've got to have some kind of integration of economies, at least, in order to build trust between nations. Now, this is all not as cloudy and abstract as you think. This is pretty, pretty simple stuff if you think about it. The idea is that nation-states do not go to war with each other if they are constantly trading with each other. That is, if they have economic linkages, if they have economic ties and communications with other countries, generally speaking, nations do not go to war with each other when they depend upon one another for their economic livelihoods. So the easiest concept of how to create linkages between nations was to have economic ties and to set up economic relationships between, say, Germany and France. By the early 1950s, Germany and France had agreed to the foundations of the common market. And because Germany and France were dependent upon each other for their economic livelihood, tariffs were removed, and essentially it was like they didn't have any borders between them. And because they were tied together, their animosities tended to go down. And it was true that nations get along better when they are dependent upon one another for their economic prosperity. 
Now, of course, eventually the European Union would expand in two ways. First, it would expand in terms of the number of member states that belong to it, because it started out as just an agreement between Germany and France. But the ambition was to extend this relationship to all sectors of the economy, to pull down all tariff barriers between nation states, but also to strengthen it with something called enlargement. Enlargement refers to bringing other nation states into the Union. And eventually there was going to be 27 European states in the European Union. Every European nation, except for Switzerland, which has always wanted its independence. And so uh, the European Union seemed to be a huge success by the end of the 1980s. And the aspiration or hope for integration was going to go way beyond economics. It was going to include politics and political agreements. For example, the European Union prohibits the death penalty, which means that no member state of the European Union can have the death penalty. This is a law at the level of the European Union, and all the member states have to agree with it, or they can't be a member of the European Union. And so there are many different examples of this, and there's also a government structure to the European Union, which makes it look a little bit like the United States. The fact that the European Union can order the member states to do certain things, like prohibit the death penalty, that sounds like the national government in the United States. And so some people have referred to the European Union as a United States of Europe. Now that is a fallacy. Europe never was and never will be a United States of Europe, nor will the European Union ever go in that direction. Europeans do not want to have a structure like the United States. And what is that structure? Well, that structure is a supranational government that has the ability to coerce its member states. And that's what we have in our Constitution. We have a federal structure of government. It is true that the states have some powers reserved to themselves under the Constitution. However, it's also true that the national government can impose its will on the states in a host of ways. And it's also true that if there's a conflict in the United States between state power and national power, the national government always comes out the winner. The founding fathers in the 1780s, when they wrote the Constitution, wanted to transfer power away from the states and concentrate that power in the national government so that the national government would have the power to coerce the states, as I said before. The Europeans don't want that. They don't want member states to surrender their sovereignty more than is absolutely necessary. Uh, now, sovereignty, I should have defined that before, sovereignty is power. And the question in any political structure or political institution or constitution is who has the power. 
Well, in the United States of America, the states do have certain powers, but the national government has more power. And again, if there is a conflict between the two, the national government is the one that comes out the winner. The European Union is not like that. The member states in the European Union do not surrender much of their power or sovereignty to the European Union. The European Union can do very little to impose its will upon the member states. And that's one of the reasons the European Union doesn't seem to be a very powerful institution. So here are some of the differences between the EU and the U.S. In the United States, the national government is supranational. That means it's above the states and it can impose its will upon the states. In the European Union, the member states are in charge. Laws are not passed unless all the member states agree to them. There has to be unanimity. There are sectors that the states have no control over in the United States, such as the military, foreign policy, and the coining of money. All those powers are reserved to the national government in the United States, but in the European Union, the member states must agree for any decisions on military action or foreign policy or monetary policy, the coining of money. If you want to find a parallel to the European Union, it would be the Confederacy in the American Civil War. The Confederate States of America were member states that had most of the power reserved to themselves, and there was very little power that was given up to the national government by the Confederate States of America. That's one of the reasons why the Confederacy lost the Civil War, because they could not coordinate their efforts and they could not surrender their sovereignty to Jefferson Davis so that he could win a war that required coordination at the top. So the Confederacy is sort of the model of the European Union, and we saw how that turned out. Many people think the European Union is going to collapse because it has the same issues of weakness that the Southern Confederacy had in the American Civil War. There are two specific problems that are faced by the European Union. One is that it is incredibly complicated. The government structure is very hard to understand. They don't have a Congress. They don't have a two-party system. They don't have a Supreme Court. They do have a Court of Justice. They do have what's called the European Commission, where member states try to agree on legislation or constitutional provisions from time to time. But these have to be unanimous decisions. And the sheer complexity of the European Union drives Europeans crazy. After you listen to this podcast, you will have a greater understanding of the nature of the European Union than the vast majority of Europeans have. Think about that for a minute. Since they can't understand it, well, what's the chance that this European Union thing is going to survive much longer. It is under tremendous stress right now for a variety of reasons. But it has also had tremendous success over the years. 
and it's impossible to say whether it will continue to survive or whether it will go the way of all flesh and disappear at some point in the future. The death of the European Union has been predicted for many years, and yet it continues to limp along and survive. The other problem with the European Union is there's a democratic deficit with it. That's a famous phrase, the democratic deficit. What that means is that the European Union is not very democratic. The member states can make all these decisions behind closed doors, and it applies to the European people, but they themselves have very little leverage over the decisions that the European Union makes. There is a parliament that is elected by all European citizens, but the parliament has the least amount of power within the European Union. It has very little power compared to the European Commission and the European Council of Ministers, which represent the member states. It's really the member states that make decisions from the top levels of their individual state leaderships. In other words, the Prime Minister of Britain meets the uh, Chancellor of Germany and the President of France, and they get together in a room and they make decisions. Well, where does that leave the people? The people don't have much say. They can vote for parties, parliamentary parties, in the European Parliament, but the European Parliament has little say-so over the decisions of the European Union. And so those are the two main problems with the European Union. So what can we say about the strengths and weaknesses of the European Union since 1987? Well, it's a complicated subject. Sometimes the very successful things that the European Union has done have created problems at the same time. This is true in so many areas of life. Man is a problem-solving creature, but in the course of solving problems, he often creates new ones. I would say the biggest strength of the European Union is its environmental policy. The European Union had a hard time getting started with legislation to protect the environment. And the United States had the lead on this when the United States created the Environmental Protection Agency under the Nixon administration in 1970. But over the decades, the European Union has gone far beyond the United States. And since the George W. Bush administration, and even more so under Donald Trump, the United States has been a laggard on environmental policy and has contributed to the problem of global warming and climate change, whereas the European Union has been a leader in attempting to enforce strict environmental policies that allow for something called sustainable development, that is, for industry to know that they can continue to operate for decades to come because they are not spoiling the environment so much that their existence would pose an intolerable threat to life and the environment. So the Europeans have been a model for environmental policy, which kind of makes sense because environmental policy requires coordinated effort across national boundaries. Pollution does not respect national boundaries. What China does to the environment affects the environment of other countries. And so you need a global response to climate change 
and environmental conditions, and the European Union is well-structured to provide such leadership, not so much traditional nation-states like the United States. The European Union has also deserved praise for spreading democracy to Eastern Europe. But Eastern Europe and Western Europe do not look at the world the same way. Eastern Europe has been more supportive of American foreign policy, for example, than Western Europe has been. And there are real divides between Eastern Europe and Western Europe. But the inclusion of East European nations in the European Union is in one sense a success story, an ever-expanding union. However, this has brought into the Union states that don't see eye-to-eye with the existing states, and that poses a threat of disunion down the road. Finally, monetary policy is a very important success story. The European Union now has a common currency, the euro, and it's a very solid currency. It trades at a higher value than the American dollar, for example. That does not mean that the euro is more stable than the dollar. It's actually a lot less stable, and it has never been able to achieve the stability of the dollar. Nevertheless, it's an impressive achievement for Europeans to have the same currency, whether you're in Germany or in France or in the Czech Republic or anywhere else in the Union. So monetary policy threatens to divide Europeans as much as it promises to bring them together. Because since the European states are not equal in terms of their economic health, some nations that are wasteful in their spending can borrow money simply because they belong to the same currency union as very powerful Germany. And sometimes they borrow money from banks that respect the euro only to spend it wastefully and creating problems within their respective countries. So the European Union is a work in progress. It has problems, but it also has had successes. And we've only touched on a few of those successes, but I think you have a fairly good grasp now of the nature, the promise, and the peril of the European Union. This is Dr. Ryman.